I'm telling a story about Winston Churchill after a decisive victory in World War II that began a series of victories which in turn led to uh, an entire victory over the war as a whole. And he made a speech after this first initial victory with lines that would be remembered for many years saying this, Now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. He's saying it's the end of the beginning of the war. Well, if I were to describe where we are, or the end of the beginning is in the Gospel of Mark, I would probably say right in the middle of chapter 8. And I missed the opportunity to use this illustration when we were there. (laughs) However, now we are at the beginning of chapter 11, which may not be the end of the beginning, but it is the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the end because it records Jesus' last week in Jerusalem. It's the moments leading up to his death and resurrection, celebrated by Palm Sunday, which happens to be this very Sunday, celebrated in our uh, country. I think the Lord's sovereign planning that we would be covering that ver- this, this section of verses today. Uh, of course, I would need to preach a sermon every day from now until next Sunday to land on the resurrection next week, which we won't be doing, uh, unfortunately. But we do celebrate as Christians the resurrection every Sunday we gather on the first day of every week. Well, as a church, we've been steadily working through the Gospel of Mark. However, it has been a number of weeks since we left off at the end of chapter 10. So I think it's an appropriate uh, move to go ahead and summarize what we've covered in the Gospel of Mark so far. Hopefully this will give you a nice overview leading into chapter 11. Uh, Please be patient with me as I remind you what we've covered so far. But go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Mark 11, 1 through 11. And you can find that on page 847 of the Bibles provided underneath the chairs. Uh, And I almost always say, if you're visiting with us and... Uh, you don't have a Bible that you can read at home, please feel free to just take one of the Bibles underneath the chairs as our gift to you. We would love for you to have your own copy of God's Word that you can read at home because we believe that God has revealed Himself to us in His Word, that He has spoken to us by His Spirit through human authors, and that it is authoritative for our lives. So there is nothing more important, therefore, than reading God's Word for yourself so that you can know Him truly. Well, the Gospel of Mark, the the book that we've been working through, is the earliest dated and shortest Gospel account. Uh, It was likely written in the early 50s, meaning possibly less than two decades after Jesus' ministry. Uh, What that also means is that there would have been people still alive who either witnessed Jesus' miracles and teachings or maybe had relatives who were with Jesus. The book is traditionally called The Gospel According to Mark because it was written by a man named John Mark who was a disciple of Peter, the the disciple of Jesus. It's one of four gospel accounts. John in the beginning of the New Testament. And it is told from the perspective of eyewitness. Uh, The gospel begins with a clear statement that Mark is writing about the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what gospel means, good news. He says, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
And so this is an account of Jesus' ministry written to encourage believers in the church in Rome who would have been under an oppressive rule of Emperor Nero at the time. It also would have been a mixed congregation of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And this is clear if you read through the Gospel of Mark. You'll notice that Mark explains Aramaic terms for his non-Jewish audience. But the book was written to encourage young believers in their faith. That the Lord Jesus really was the Son of God. That he continues to reign as king. Therefore, the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, has finally come. In the very first chapter, Mark tells his readers, Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He tells of his baptism in which the Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove and then announces, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That's chapter 1, verse 11. Shortly after Jesus begins his ministry by preaching his first sermon in chapter 1, verse 15, saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So from the very start, we learn that Jesus is the one sent from God, the very Son of God, that he comes with a message to repent and believe in the gospel. He is the Messiah that accomplishes the forgiveness of sins for those who trust him as we'll come to see in his life. And so Jesus begins an incredible ministry, one that is described or identified as a ministry of authority. As he teaches in the synagogues, he casts out demons, he exercises authority over sickness, over sins, over nature, and even death. All of these things, Jesus teaches alongside with unexplainable authority, recognized even by his enemies. But they can't agree with his teaching because when you put his teaching and his miracles together, you get God incarnate. Jesus is wielding the authority that only God has and saying things that only God says. This is most clear in chapter 2 when he forgives the paralyzed man. He says, your sins are forgiven. And what do the bystanders, the scribes in the room say? Who can forgive sins? But God alone, he is blaspheming. And just in case you think that they might have been mistaken in their assumptions, Jesus heals the paralyzed man to prove it, and then says, and I quote, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus, in chapter 3, heals a man with a withered hand. And there we read that from that point, the Pharisees conspired with Herodians against him to destroy him. Jesus goes on traveling, performing more miracles, and as he does, he's teaching, revealing more things about his identity. He calls disciples to himself, and he's gradually teaching them in secret, explaining to them various parables. And what becomes clear when you get to chapters 8 through 10 in the book is that people, and the disciples included, had basically the wrong idea of what it meant to be the Messiah. They had the idea that the Messiah would be a military leader who would overthrow the Romans and then reestablish the kingdom of the Jews. And while Jesus is the new David, Jesus' main mission was not war, but submission to God the Father's plan. His main enemy is our main enemy, sin and death. 
And so Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection three times in chapters 8 through 10. And then in chapter 10, verse 45, we read the clearest summary of his mission, I think, in the whole book. It says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the most recent passage, the end of chapter 10 that we studied, Jesus was passing through Jericho. It was the last stop on the way to Jerusalem where he would be killed. And as he is passing along the way, a blind beggar called him the son of David twice. And remember that calling someone the son of David is not a comment about his family tree. This blind beggar would have probably not known who his parents were. It was a comment about his authority. It was a title of honor and kingship. Bartimaeus didn't know the genealogy of Matthew as we have it now, but he knew, based on what he had heard about what Jesus had done, that Jesus was the servant of the Lord who would sit on David's throne. And then Jesus confirms his confession by restoring his sight. And the story concludes with Bartimaeus following Jesus on the way, that is, on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to the royal city, the place of the temple, the place of the throne of David that was nicknamed the city of David. If there was to be a victory to win for the people, it would be there. That's why as Jesus was walking ahead of the disciples on the road, In chapter 10, verse 32, the people following him are both amazed and afraid as he walks ahead of them. All of that gets us to where we are now, this morning, in chapter 11, which is commonly referred to as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. These verses mark the final third of Mark's gospel. So if you were to divide Mark's gospel up into thirds, this would be the entire third And this week of events in John's gospel takes up half of the book. So what I'm getting at here is the gospel authors spend a lot of time focusing on this aspect or this portion of Jesus' ministry, which means it is very important. With that in mind, let's read our text together now. Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately." And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to, said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. 
And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Up to this point in the gospel, many of the comments that describe Jesus' travel act as basically transitions between one miracle or one set of teaching to another. But in this episode, something significant is happening as he travels. In fact, it's the most climactic moment in Jesus' ministry yet. My prayer for you this morning is that you will see the person of Jesus as one of supreme honor on the one hand, and yet extreme humility on the other, as we review the mission of the Son of God. So first, point one, a king announced, verses 1 through 7, a king announced. If there's anything shocking about this event, it's the public nature of it. Jesus has performed miracles out in the open up to this point, but much of the specific revelation about himself, the explanations of the miracles and teachings up to this point, have been done in private with Jesus to his disciples. Not only that, but we've seen Jesus heal people, and then after healing them, instruct them not to tell others about what has happened. It's what we call the messianic secret, because uh, I think the misunderstandings about who Jesus was and what it meant to be the Messiah meant Jesus didn't want to stir up a a military coup or something like that. Uh, He had a plan and is working according to the timing of God the Father for his plan. Well, we've reached a point in Jesus' journey where he's no longer discouraging people from worshiping him openly. And the result is basically a procession of a king into the epicenter of Jewish life, into Jerusalem. Now, to be fair, this event is always called the triumphal entry, when in reality it seems more like he's on the way to the city, though he does enter into it from the Mount of Olives. Uh, The Mount of Olives, just so you know, is a range of mountains on the east side of the city. Uh, It's about 300 feet higher than the city itself, so you can look down on the city from one of the peaks, uh, and it does look specifically over the temple, but there is a nice panoramic view of the city as a whole. And the Mount of Olives, you should also know, is a significant place, significant location in the Bible. Uh, Much has happened in Israel's history Uh, Think in the Old Testament, for example, when David is fleeing for his life from his son Absalom, who's trying to kill him, he flees by way of the Mount of Olives. He goes over and beyond. And then David's son Solomon, uh, when he sins and turns away from the Lord, he builds altars to false Canaanite gods on the Mount of Olives. Uh, Later, when Israel is in exile, the prophet Ezekiel receives a vision in which the glory of the Lord departs from the temple and then moves to the east, goes up to the Mount of Olives, and then stops and looks down at the city. Not only that, but it is a place of eschatology, of last things. In the book of Zechariah, when God comes in judgment, his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives. Now then, of course, the Mount of Olives is very significant in the New Testament as well. In the life of Jesus, it basically is his home base while he's here in Jerusalem. So one of the reasons I think Mark mentions coming to the Mount of Olives first is because this is the place where Jesus is going to retreat to, to sleep in the evenings. Most famously, it is where the Garden of Gethsemane is, where Jesus prays 
and is betrayed on the night of his crucifixion? Well, what does all this significance mean for this particular story and for us this morning? Well, anytime you see a place in Scripture where there is a history of significant things that happen there, it should cause you to perk up a little bit and pay attention. Most likely it means something significant is going to happen again. Speaking of geography, Mark describes this road as going through Bethphage and Bethany and then to the Mount of Olives. Uh, and my guess is you don't think anything of this, but uh, I've discovered this in research. You know, If someone were to look up that order of road and look up the modern-day roads, you would find that the road doesn't go in that order. It goes in a different order. And this is the exact type of thing that would maybe cause a critic of the Bible to say, see, there's a contradiction. Clearly the Bible's inaccurate. It can't be true. There's contradictions like this all over. When a little bit of research will show you that Jesus and his disciples did not travel on the modern-day roads. They traveled on the Roman roads. And when we look at what the Roman road was, we find out it's exactly the same as the order that Mark puts it into. I mentioned that just as a reminder to hopefully encourage you of the reliability of the Bible, the trustworthiness of Scripture. It has stood the test of time, and it happens to be the most reliable historical document that we have. Most likely, if there's an apparent contradiction, a little bit of study will show that the scripture is in fact true. That's a bit of a tangent for you. I love the subject of textual criticism, so it doesn't take much for me to dash down that kind of rabbit trail. But it's just one more example of the Bible's historical reliability for you. Anyway, as Jesus is walking, he sends two of his disciples off to fetch a colt for him, a a donkey, And it sounds prophetic that Jesus just knows where the cult is, likely in Bethphage, one of those two towns. Uh, And it's caused some to ask whether or not Jesus is using supernatural knowledge to know where this donkey is. And first I would say, given everything that Jesus has done so far in the gospel, it's not that much of a stretch to think that he would supernaturally know where a cult is tied But that's actually not really the point. If it was prearranged, the point is not that Jesus has the knowledge of where a donkey is. The point is that he understands the scriptures and sees himself as the fulfillment of them. I mean, have you ever wondered why Jesus decided to ride on a donkey? I mean, come on, Jesus. Think about his miracles for a minute. The feeding of thousands of people in the wilderness. The walking on water the casting out demons. I mean, the branches are great and all, but can't you think of something a little more grand for your entrance into the city than a donkey? They're not the most noble of creatures. When you think about a great king or a commander, uh, think for a moment about, say, Alexander the Great or George Washington uh, or uh, Caesar or Napoleon, any one of these great figures most likely you're thinking about them riding a large war horse. Uh, One figure in history that's always fascinated me personally, for whatever reason, is Napoleon. And, uh, you know, what I've learned as I've studied him is that he very much rallied many of his countrymen to follow him with the use of propaganda. And so he had painters paint many pictures of him and post them around towns. And almost all of these pictures are him riding a large horse, 
And one of the reasons for that is because in real life, he was actually quite short, short and stout. Donkeys are not uh, the most noble. They're not the most intimidating. They're not really scary or dangerous. They don't exactly beckon in a commanding presence. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, one of the reasons is, in fact, because Jesus has great humility. It is a sign that he is the humble, suffering servant. Uh, He's already told his disciples that the greatest in heaven must be a servant of all. Uh, He continues to be the humble servant, come to save his people as he will eventually lay down his life for them. Uh, Note, too, uh, that this detail has caused one pastor to uh, simply acknowledge that Jesus didn't really have anything in the way of material possessions. He, He didn't have material power, you could say, in the world. He had no riches. He didn't have a place to lay his head in Jerusalem, so he sleeps on the Mount of Olives. When he crossed the sea in Galilee, he did it in a borrowed boat. When he came into Jerusalem, it's on a borrowed colt. And when he died on the cross, he laid in a borrowed tomb. Such is the humility of the Son of God who made himself low for us. So yes, a donkey is a symbol of Christ's Humility, but that's not the only thing going on here. By securing a donkey, Jesus is very intentionally fulfilling the prophecy from Israel's history. And these prophecies go all the way back and throughout the Bible. There are very specific ones. But let me just give you an overview. If we start way back at the beginning of Genesis, God created the world and everything in it. He created Adam and Eve in perfect harmony with God. And when Adam and Eve sinned, the curse was put on humanity as a whole. So every descendant of Adam lives under the curse of Adam. And that's why you and I sin. There is no one righteous. No, not one. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. They're cut off from the presence of God. He places an angel of fire at the gate so they can't get back in. Uh, There is death and then pain. And in Genesis 3.15 we read of what many call the first gospel, the proto-euangelion. And it's what the Lord says to the serpent. He says that the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring would be at enmity and that the woman's offspring would bruise the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. He will strike his heel, which will hurt, but the seed of the woman will deal the fatal blow to the head. And so from the very beginning, we are, if you read through it, looking for who this descendant is going to be. And so you think it might be the various figures. Noah comes along, and then Abraham, and then Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And it looks like Joseph might be the the kind of deliverer type of figure. Uh, But as it turns out, it's not. At the end of Jacob's life, he pronounces blessings to all of his kids. And uh, this type of blessing was more of a prophetic Uh, announcement more than just a a word of encouragement and as he's going through his 12 sons which would eventually become the 12 tribes of israel he comes to his son judah to bless him and he says this the scepter shall not depart from judah meaning there will be a king in judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribes uh, until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people binding his full to the vine 
and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And he has washed his garments in the wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So a promised king will come from the tribe of Judah, which we know explicitly is the tribe that David came from. But even David, though he is a man after God's own heart, we read earlier in the service, 2 Samuel 7, there would be another after him, David's son, which immediately is fulfilled in Solomon, but we know Solomon falls short, terribly falls short, sins greatly, and the people are judged from it. They're placed into exile from that moment on. And then many more prophecies begin to pop up in the prophets, speaking of how David will sit on the throne again and shepherd the people of Israel. But the most clear prophecy that Jesus seems to be fulfilling in our verses this morning is from Zechariah 9, verse 9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus, by securing himself a donkey, is proclaiming himself to be the king of Israel, the one long awaited for. There can be no mistaking it. In fact, if Jesus decided to ride a horse in, then I think there would be reason for suspicion People would maybe wonder where the donkey is from Zechariah, but here the donkey clearly signifies Zechariah 9. would have been ringing in their ears. It's a deliberate allusion to the messianic prophecy. You know, one other interesting thing to note about Jesus' life in general is that in all four Gospels, everything we know about Jesus' life, and think about all of the places he's traveled up to this point, he's traveled a lot, Of all that material, not once do we read of Jesus riding a donkey, except for here, on a downhill journey into a city. This story, by the way, is told in all four Gospels. So all of the traveling he did, even if he did at some point, which we have no record of, it's like the Gospel authors intentionally left it out to highlight this moment. Jesus riding a donkey, going downhill on an easy journey, the last leg into the city. Something else is happening, and there can't be any mistake of it. This is not what normal pilgrims do, by the way. Uh, Many will say, well, lots of people were journeying and pilgrimaging to Jerusalem for Passover at this time. But they don't treat Jesus like a normal pilgrim. You do normally finish the journey on foot, not on a colt. And praises are not sung when you come into the city as a pilgrim, nor branches laid down at your feet. There's another significance about the donkey mentioned in verse 2. Jesus has very specific instructions that they find a colt, which, quote, has, which no one has ever sat. Now, why would that matter, you think? A donkey that's never been ridden before. The reason is twofold. It is a sign of royalty. Uh, Just traditionally, no one was to ride the king's horse except for the king. But even more than that, in Jewish history, when you find animals chosen for religious purposes, like, say, for example, sacrifices, uh, the animal had to be unbroken or unyoked. Uh, The same was true of the ox that had to pull the Ark of the Covenant. 
the Ark of the Covenant signifying the very presence of God. The point is that animals devoted to these kinds of sacred purposes had to be animals that were not used for ordinary work. They had to be set aside for these special instances. So Jesus is selecting a donkey that has never been ridden. And it signifies as a kind of religious and ceremonial usage of Israel's king. Well, what can we learn from all of this so far? Uh, on the surface, this just looks like Jesus traveling into the city. Very plain, doesn't it? It's just the last leg of his journey. But we see when we pull details from all over the Bible that it all points to Jesus culminating in this moment. So we can be reminded when we read the Bible that it's all about Jesus. It may not be readily apparent or obvious to you depending on where you are. But when we read the Bible, we need to know that it all points forward to Jesus. And Jesus affirmed that when he opened up the scriptures and told his disciples how all the prophets and writings pointed to him. So friend, if you're new to Christianity or a young Christian, uh, let me just recommend that you start reading the Bible and make at least one part of reading the Bible one of the Gospels, the life of Jesus. Because if you understand Jesus, you're going to understand how the whole Bible fits together much better uh, than reading another book isolated from it. I'd also recommend just reading an extra book about Jesus. One we give out regularly and uh, really love is a book called Who is Jesus by Greg Gilbert. Uh, a fantastic summary about the way uh, Jesus is woven all over Scripture. Jesus is not just God's plan for Israel. He is God's plan for all of humanity. As we heard from the garden, as was promised to Abraham that he would bless all of the nations of the world through his descendants, Jesus is the king of all creation not just Israel, and he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Point two, a king welcomed. Verses eight through ten, a king welcomed. We can always learn something when we look at the events in Jesus' life by looking at what those around him did, how they responded to Jesus in the moment. And in this particular case, the responses to Jesus are electric and instantaneous. Remember that in chapter 10, verse 46, those surrounding and following Jesus, Mark describes them as a great crowd, uh, meaning many, many people, hundreds, perhaps thousands, much more than just Jesus' small group of disciples and Bartimaeus. Matthew, when he tells this story, he says that the whole city is stirred up, saying, who is this? Uh, just like the disciples were saying in fear after Jesus calmed the wind and the waves on the sea. Luke in his gospel says that the stones might have cried out in praise if the people had not. And the people respond to Jesus appropriately in their actions and in their voices. First, they begin by laying down their garments on the donkey for Jesus to sit on, and then also on the road in front of him to walk on. They grab branches and lay them along the path as well. There is actually a parallel to this, this type of welcoming, this, this type of 
inauguration, if you will, in the Old Testament. In Second uh, Kings chapter 9, verse 13, it happens to be the coronation of a king named Jehu. He's a king that followed Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, who is a notoriously horrible king in Israel's history, perhaps one of the worst, married to Jezebel. And so Elisha anoints Jehu privately, and then he publicly comes out and is declared king before the people. And just like Jesus here, it says, In haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. Just like people around Jesus lay their cloaks on the donkey and on the road before him, they basically are rolling the red carpet out for Jesus, making a statement that he is king. Jehu was made king in secret and then publicly announced. And very similarly, Jesus so far has been quite secretive in his ministry, telling others to keep quiet. But this is the turning point. This is him going public, if you will. Jesus is finally and publicly proclaimed king. The branches that people are waving are also significant. I have some religious significance in Judaism. They didn't just use them. Anytime uh, a high-profile figure was around, or even anytime a king was around. Typically, they were used to celebrate deliverance and provision in the wilderness during uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or during the celebration of the Passover. So the combination of deliverance and proclamation of the king point to Jesus not only being king, but deliverer who, who has come to set captives free. Those festivals I mentioned, by the way, celebrate the deliverance in the Exodus. It's like they're not only celebrating uh, what happened in the past, but they're now portraying, projecting that celebration on the person of Jesus who will bring future deliverance, a new kind of Exodus. That's what they do with their actions, and then they also praise him with their voices. They're singing what's called the Hallel, the Hallel Psalms or the Hallelujah Psalms. Uh, these are uh, recorded in our book of Psalms. There are Psalms 113 to 118. They're typically rehearsed, again, during Passover celebrations, which was the purpose of this journey. And the specific psalm that they're shouting is Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. It's a psalm focused on salvation, but instead of singing it over a Passover meal like they would have, they sing it at Jesus. They say, Hosanna, which means, quite literally, save, I pray. And it also had the usage of a praise, much like we would just say, Hallelujah. Look again at verses 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The people are declaring deliverance once again. Like I said, in an Exodus-like fashion. Remember how Mark began his gospel by quoting Isaiah, saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. And how Jesus right after said, the kingdom of God is fulfilled with his coming. They even say the kingdom of our father, David, which is, from what we can tell, not stated anywhere else. Did not Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, just confess Jesus as the son of David, 
Friends, it's like the entire Bible and Mark's Gospel is just firing on all cylinders to show that Jesus is the Lord Himself, the Messiah, who will come and sit on the throne and rule over His people. This text has reminded me to know my Bible better. It has encouraged me just in my own study as I've dug up the connections and made them in my own study. It's reminded me just the importance of of knowing all of the Scripture well, uh, even the obscure prophecies that you don't always understand at first. Because the more we know the Old Testament, then the deeper understanding about Jesus we will have as we see all the ways that He fulfills the Old Testament. Uh, So, friend, read the Bible completely, wholly. Read the Old Testament as well. Uh, If you have a hard time understanding it, read with another member or a, a help like a study Bible. Another note is uh, just another comment. If perhaps you're here and you're skeptical of Jesus' claim to be king, to be the Messiah. You know, those who say that Jesus was just a moral teacher and nothing more have to come to grips with the fact that Jesus himself thought much more than that. He's the one who initiated getting the donkey in the first place. His enemies, too, even the opposition, believed he claimed to be God. That's why they called him a blasphemer and eventually condemned him to death for calling himself the king of the Jews. And then look at those who followed him as he came to the city. This is not the response that you give to a good moral teacher. Everyone around him clearly thought that Jesus was the Messiah as he claimed to be. Even that being the case, as we've seen with the disciples earlier in the gospel, their idea of a Messiah was mistaken. And that's what leads me to point three. A king misunderstood. Verse 11. A king misunderstood. So, so far, with the great description of Jesus' approach to the city, the buildup of his ministry, the theological and historical depth of what is going on, you would expect something really big or maybe even dangerous to happen when Jesus gets to the city. Uh, But that's not what happens at all, is it? In fact, the ending of this passage is totally underwhelming. All the momentum just comes to a screeching halt in verse 11. Look at it again. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What happened? Strange. Did the people just leave? It seems like the people got excited, shouted praise to Jesus, rolled out the carpet for his arrival, and then everybody just decided, all right, let's go home now. The other Gospels really emphasize what we've been talking about so far the glory of Jesus, his kingly nature about him. But Mark's account is slightly different. Mark here, I think, wants us to see something. Mark is emphasizing what did not happen. There's no indication that anyone from the crowd goes with Jesus into the temple. The people seem to leave him. Maybe his disciples were with him. It's like all of the romance of the moment just instantly is taken away. 
Jesus coming to the city is like a really important part of a movie with a slow zoom going in and music building. And then in a split second, the music just cuts and it goes all, all the way back to the original place where the camera was, like a record screeching. All the tension of the moment is suddenly lost. Verse 11 is totally anticlimactic. So what is Jesus doing in the temple anyway? Why does he go and then turn around right after he enters it for the night? What could have been going on in Jesus' head as he entered the temple? That I really cannot know. I wish I did. But here's what I think is most likely based on what we know from the rest of Scripture. Jesus made a very public entrance to and claim all the while as the king of Israel. He knew about the prophecies he was fulfilling. Next week, we're going to read about Jesus' indictment on the temple, which means that in this moment, he's surveying what is supposed to be the epicenter of the people's worship, the heart of the people. Jesus' advent to the holy city begins the final phase of his ministry and the last week of his life. And I think what you'll notice is that the last week of his life totally revolves around the temple. He'll go back to teach in it multiple times. And it's no surprise that Jesus goes straight to the, to the temple, to us, because this is the place where people were to worship God, where they were supposed to make sacrifices. But the people don't follow him. I think there's a deeper reason. Jesus in John 2, verse 19, refers to himself as the temple. He says, tear this temple down and in three days I will rebuild it. Uh, The temple Jesus walks in and out of in verse 11 took the people 46 years to build. So when Jesus says, in three days I'm going to rebuild it, they just laugh at him. How could you do that in three days? This took 46 years, not realizing he's talking about himself. And the reason is because the temple is no longer the place that God dwells among his people. Instead, his presence has been manifested fully in his son, Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the new temple. And the temple he's standing in is just a shell in verse 11. The temple was a place of sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. And instead of sacrificing at the temple, Jesus himself would give his body as the perfect sacrifice during the Passover to atone for the sins. And in that moment, when he breathes his last on the cross, we'll read later in chapter 15 of Mark's Gospel, that a four-inch thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, the reason the curtain's so thick is because of the dangerous presence of a holy God near a sinful people, is to keep people out. But the four-inch thick curtain is torn from top to bottom, showing that the dividing wall of hostility has been removed because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Therefore, with confidence, we can draw near to the throne of grace because his blood covers our sins. That's why Christians have met on the first day of the week to celebrate his resurrection after this sacrifice was given the sacrifice once and for all. We no longer need a temple. 
because His Spirit fills those who profess faith in Jesus. Therefore, the church is referred to as the body of Christ with Him at the head. Friends, Jesus didn't come to conquer the Romans like many thought. He came to restore the broken relationship between God and mankind. He came as the descendant of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And in doing so, he established an everlasting kingdom that would never fade away. Rome has come and has been gone for over a thousand years. But the kingdom of God, fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, still reigns. Remember Mark's audience in Rome underneath Nero. Think about how they would have received Jesus' death and resurrection. The confidence and encouragement that their hope is secure in Christ. His blood was poured out as a ransom for us. Friend, if you're hearing about Jesus for the first time this morning, I just want to warn you not to be like the crowds in this passage who praise Jesus on the streets in the open with their lips and then leave him when he goes into the temple, seemingly without affecting their lives at all. They don't continue with him on his journey. And if you recognize and you believe that Jesus is who he claims to be and you recognize the authority with which he came, the prophecies that he fulfilled, don't run away from Jesus. Turn from your sins and trust in Him. Set yourself under His Lordship. If you have any questions about what it may look like for you to believe in Jesus and to become a Christian, uh, I would love to talk to you afterwards, or one of the church members would, uh, to see what that has been like in my own life. I'd be happy to share, uh, or to help you think through what that might mean for yours. Consider trusting in Jesus today. The people recognize Jesus, they applied the prophecies to him, but they forgot the purpose of God's everlasting covenant. They forgot the purpose of living under God's king, to be his people and for him to be their God. The prophet Ezekiel, I referenced earlier, has a vision of the glory of the Lord departing from the temple and stopping on the mountain to the east. It's a shocking and terrible vision. As the glory of the Lord departs, it just appears that no one seems to notice it. But in chapter 43 of Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord returns the same way from the east to enter the temple and establish a new city. And then as Ezekiel describes what the city is like at the very end of the book, he says the name of the city is the Lord is there. Brothers and sisters, do you see the beauty of the person of Jesus, the presence of God in this passage, the magisterial glory and yet humility of our King, the suffering servant, the son of David, the Messiah? In Jesus, the Lord is here, and we have access to the Father through Him. He gives His Spirit to all who come to Him in faith, And this is the great plan of God from the very beginning of creation. We take part in his kingdom each week that we gather together as believers. Uh, This small local church is an outpost of the kingdom against which the gates of Hades will never prevail, Jesus promised. 
Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am among them. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because ever since you created the world, you set a plan in motion to redeem sinners, sinners who have rebelled against you, who are unworthy of your mercy. In love, you sent your son Jesus to be the propitiation for us. He laid down his life as a sacrifice on our behalf, taking our sins upon him on the cross. He rose three days later, proclaiming freedom to the captives, proclaiming victory over death and sin. Father, we praise you this morning, for you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. We praise you because your son was a suffering servant in perfect obedience. And while through one man, sin and condemnation came to all men, so by your Son, many were made righteous. We praise you for this in the name of Jesus, our Lord.